A reading from Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing the same thing? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. So we're journeying through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and through it, Jesus is showing us a whole new way of being human. The way of Jesus is not uh, religion or irreligion. It's not moralism or relativism. It's something else entirely. It's not throwing off the rules and being your own boss. And it's not rigid external conformity to the rules. It's receiving a new heart. It's becoming a new person. It's being transformed on the inside by God's spirit. So that you become someone who naturally comes to want what God wants and love how God loves in verse 20, a little bit earlier, Jesus tells his followers that their righteousness, righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And then he spends the rest of chapter 5 saying, let me show you what I mean by that. Last week, Jasmine walked through the first four case studies of the chapter. If you missed it, make sure you go back and listen to it. It was a great sermon. Uh, this morning, we're going to look at the last two case studies of Jesus. And the first one is visible, don't retaliate. The second one is invisible, love your enemies. So here we go. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Jesus is quoting an ancient law. It's the ancient law of retaliation. It's often called lex talionis. And it shows up three times in the law of Moses, but it shows up in other cultures' laws as well. And the idea behind the law is twofold. Number one, justice requires retribution, which is true. If someone injures you and there are no consequences, then your sense of justice is profoundly offended. Justice requires retribution. Secondly, equal retribution curbs violence. Classic example is tribe number one sneaks into tribe number two at night and steals a sheep, brings it back to their tribe. 
Tribe number two figures out what happens. The next night, they sneak into tribe number one, steal two sheep, bring them back. Well, now they're figuring out what the pattern. So they go in, they, they, they steal three sheep the next night. It just keeps going back and forth until it spirals completely out of control. Well, the law of equal retribution keeps things from spiraling, keeps things from escalating. Now, lex talionis is not a moral law. It's a civil law. It's a law that's designed to help society to work. By making it a civil law, it takes retributive justice out of the private sphere where it could easily spiral out of control and puts it in a public forum where there's accountability. Could you imagine if we didn't do this? Civilization, society would be virtually impossible. So the purpose of the law was to define justice and limit revenge, thus bringing order to society. So it's a good law. It's a necessary law. So if it's good and necessary, then why does Jesus seem to be contradicting it? Well, a lot has changed since the law was written. The biggest change is that Israel was no longer a theocracy. They didn't rule themselves anymore. They were occupied. They were ruled by the Romans. So while faithful Jews continued to obey the moral law, they were not free to enforce their own civil laws. So knowing that, why would Jesus even bring this up? <laughs> because the Pharisees, in their zeal to obey the letter of the law, were using this law, this lex talionis, in their private relationships, basically as a justification for getting revenge on their enemies. So Jesus is saying, look, that was never God's intent. The intent of this law was to curb violence. It was not to get or to justify revenge. When you think about it, Jesus is really confronting not just the Pharisees, but the entire history of human civilization. Because we all do this. When someone wrongs us, our instinct is to take matters into our own hands, to get even. And we always think we're justified to do so. But here Jesus is saying, my followers operate differently. My followers would rather break the cycle of violence and suffer than keep the cycle going. Instead of getting, getting even, my followers will shock the world with uncommon grace. Instead of plotting revenge, my followers will get creative. And they'll imagine new ways of subverting the system that dignify both the abuser and the abused. Those who take advantage of others and those who are taken advantage of. And in the process, my followers will create new possibilities for relationships. And then Jesus says, let me show you what I mean. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now remember, Jesus is saying all of this to people who were oppressed. Who were reminded daily that Rome was in charge. That they had no power, they had no legal representation, they had no dignity. And a lot of people hear Jesus and they say, why is he telling people who are already oppressed basically to embrace their slave status and become doormats? Ah, that's not what Jesus is doing at all. What Jesus is doing is actually profoundly liberating. 
If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Visualize this with me. Most people are right-handed. If a person facing you slaps you on the right cheek, they're not punching you. They're backhanding you. That's not a physical threat. It's an insult. The person who's doing this is not trying to hurt you. They're trying to demean you. They're saying, you are nothing. Slaves were backhanded. Occupied people were backhanded. Now, if someone backhands you and you stay in that position, you are accepting your status as a demeaned person, as a nobody. But if you offer your other cheek, your head is up. And now the other person has a choice to make. They can't backhand you anymore. They can punch you, but in that culture, you only punched equals. So now they have to decide, how do they want to relate to you? They can't just dismiss you anymore. Your head is up. You've rejected their insult. You defied it. You've refused to be defined by it. So what are they going to do now? You haven't struck back, and yet... You've created a situation that shocks them, that shatters their conception of you, that makes a whole new relationship possible. If someone sues you for your shirt, Jesus says, offer them your cloak as well. Shock them with grace at the very moment that they're trying to dispossess you. Let them know that you value your relationship or the potential relationship even more than you value your possessions. Force them to decide if they really want to leave you standing naked by the side of the road or if that would end up demeaning them. Force them to examine their own heart, their own motives. Make it possible for them to repent and to be both humbled and reconciled. Martin Luther King Jr. said, the nonviolent resistor tries to awaken a sense of moral shame. But the end game is redemption. The end game is reconciliation. In those days, Roman soldiers were allowed to conscript anyone they wanted to carry their bags for them for a mile. Granted, the first mile you carry their bags, you are a slave. But the second mile you carry it, you're a master. The first mile they're using you, but the second mile something happens. They realize, you know, I could get in big trouble here. Now they have a choice to make. If they conscript you for a second mile, they're in the wrong. And they could be disciplined by their commanding officer unless, unless they acknowledge you as a friend who freely carries their bags a second mile out of the sheer goodness of your own heart. So now what are they going to do? See, in each of these examples, Jesus is releasing his followers from the limits of the political and social order. He is unleashing a divine conspiracy designed to turn the world right side up. He's awakening the oppressor to their moral shame and providing a path to reconciliation and personal redemption. See, as long as you're hell-bent on getting revenge, your options are severely limited. If you choose to get even... You're, you're, you're not even really all that different from your abuser. 
You just feel justified because they struck first. I remember when I was in eighth grade, a classmate of mine, we were outside. It was gym class. He picked up a rock and threw it at me, and I was pissed off. So what did I do? I picked up a rock and threw it back. Now, my aim wasn't as good as him. I missed. By God's grace, I missed, and he created a window for me to cool down. Take stock. Get some perspective. Did I take that window? No. I kept throwing rocks at this kid until I finally hit him. I felt justified in doing so, but in the end, you know what? I felt crappy because I had become just like him. We both served in school suspension together. But revenge limits your options. It makes you small. It keeps injecting more and more violence into the system. It breaks your neighbor and it breaks you. But if you're willing to show grace, your options are unlimited. This is incredibly empowering. This is incredibly liberating. If an oppressed person can show uncommon grace to their oppressor, then they're no longer a slave. They're free. They have dignity. They have power. They have the power to shock someone, to subvert the system. They have the ability to respond in ways that no one has ever responded before. They're not limited to getting even. They're not stifled by resentment. They're not defined by their oppressors. They're free. They can be as creative as they want to be. They can create a bizarro world. By the way, these aren't laws. Jesus isn't saying this is what you must do. He's saying here are some examples of what could happen when grace explodes in your life. Here's what could happen when you stop standing on your rights and seeking revenge and start getting creative. I have a friend who works on the bottommost rung of the hospitality industry. This is a place where employees are frequently mistreated and taken for granted and dehumanized. Here's what she does. She calls her overbearing boss brother. She's assertive without being aggressive. She sticks up for her coworkers and goes the extra mile for the guests, even those guests that are rude to her. She dreams of ways to add value to the guest experience. She improves the lives of everyone around her. She is a humanizing influence at work. She's not limited by the stifling culture. She's not defined by her overbearing boss. She's not crushed by a system that is designed to crush people. Why? Because grace has exploded in her life and created unlimited possibilities. Her imagination isn't dominated by retribution, but by uncommon grace and self-giving love. She's free. She's creative. She's thriving. Explain that without Jesus. Another friend of mine was recently fired from her job. The whole process that led to her termination was incredibly painful and demeaning. As a result, one of her coworkers immediately gave her two weeks' notice. I cannot describe for you just how horribly they were treated. On Thursday, I got a text from the woman who was fired. She said, well, today is my colleague's last day. After serving wholeheartedly for 14 years, no one at work is even acknowledging her departure. So I think that we should stand in the parking lot and cheer her on when she leaves work for the last time. So I went and joined the cheering line. She was brought to tears 
That's a new way to be human. Instead of plotting revenge, instead of storing up resentment, she got to work creating a conspiracy of kindness. Injecting a broken system with grace, overwhelming pain with joy. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. Retaliation is the way of the world. Grace is the way of Jesus. When Howard Thurman was a child, he got into a fight with a classmate. When he got home, his grandmother saw his bruised and bloodied face and asked him, what happened? He said, I got into a fight, Grandma, but I won. She said, no one ever wins a fight. It's true. Violence never destroys violence. It only multiplies it. As Martin Luther King Jr. said, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Just like hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. When are you tempted to get even? When are you tempted to inflict pain? When are you tempted to ruin someone else's reputation? Or cut them down to size? The Apostle Paul says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. As it is written, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. When those temptations come, could you go to God and say to him, I trust your justice, not mine. I trust your timing, not mine. I don't know everything you know. But I don't want this pain, this hurt, this anger to call the shot. So help me to show uncommon grace in this situation. Make me an instrument of your peace. I don't want to get even. I don't want to inflict pain. I want reconciliation. I want peace. I want shalom to reign through me. Jesus' followers break the cycle of violence and hatred. They inject broken systems with grace and forgiveness and make new relationships possible. Now, that would be plenty for us to work on this week, but unfortunately, Jesus keeps talking. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. For the record, the Bible never says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus is confronting the tribal hearts of the Pharisees who are always on a quest to limit God's love. Who said, I love my people, I love my tribe, I love those who follow my religion, but I am not obligated to love my enemy. I am not obligated to love anyone who harms me or anyone outside my tribe. When Jesus says, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, he's telling his followers to renounce any and all restrictions on love. Any and all temptations to limit the reach of love. Jesus is unbundling religion from xenophobia. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. If you claim to be God's child, you cannot put limits on who you love. The world's love is restricted. God's love is not. This preaches really well to people on both sides of the aisle. Have you noticed that? He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Imagine watching the news 
And the meteorologist gets up there and says, tomorrow's going to be gorgeous, 77 degrees and sunny. Except for you, Mark, you've been a jerk lately. You get rain. <laughs> That's not how God loves. God lavishes good gifts on everyone, and we resemble God when we love like that. Family and I recently visited our parents in Florida. I got to spend a few days on the beach, and it was gorgeous. It was warm. It was sunny. It was wonderful. And there were thousands of people on the beach, and I have no idea who was cheating on their taxes. I have no idea who was cheating on their spouse. I have no idea who was failing to pay their employees a living wage. I have no idea who was exasperating their children or disobeying their parents. All I know is that we all got the same great beach day. And we resemble God when we love like that. When we love indiscriminately. And if you love those who love you, what reward will you get, Jesus says. Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people... What are you doing more than others? Don't even the pagans do that? Prejudicial love is really self-love. If you only love people who are like you, then you really only love yourself. If you only love people who love you back, then you really only love yourself. Tax collectors do that, for crying out loud. They are the opposite of moral virtue. They extort their own people. Pagans do that, too. If you only love people who look like you, believe like you, love like you, then you're really no different from Vladimir Putin. Worldly love is cold and calculated. It only loves when it gets something in return. Worldly love asks all the wrong questions. Will I get a good return on this investment? Is this relationship going to cost me too much? What's in it for me? God's love is indiscriminate. It's generous. It's lavish. It's free. It expects nothing in return. Jesus poured into Judas for three years. Jesus lavished wisdom and affection on him. Jesus washed his feet, knowing full well that Judas would stab him in the back. Love like that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. What does this mean, be perfect? God is perfect because he loves indiscriminately. Love like that. Love your enemies. Love those outside your tribe. Love those who hurt you and make your life difficult. Don't be limited by what's in it for you. Don't be limited by the scripts the world hands us, getting even. Only loving those who love you back. Be set free by the gospel to love extravagantly and unexpectedly. How do we apply this? You might jot down these five ideas here. First one is we have to root out of our lives those voices that cultivate fear, hatred, and resentment. We need to turn off the voices that tell us to look down on or distance ourselves from those outside of our tribe. For some of us, that means setting boundaries with certain friends or relatives. For some of us, it means rethinking what media personalities we allow to shape our hearts and minds. But we can't allow ourselves to be malformed by those who seek to cultivate fear and stoke grievances, by those that want to put up walls. 
Second, we need to make sure that we attack and subvert evil systems, but love evil people. I know that as soon as I start talking about evil systems, somebody's defenses go up. But we have to maintain this distinction. Here's why. The Apostle Paul wrote that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. As Martin Luther King Jr. says, it's a battle between justice and injustice, the forces of light and the forces of darkness. Our goal is to defeat injustice. It's not to defeat people who might happen to be unjust. If we don't make this distinction, we will constantly be tempted to demonize and attack people. But that's not the goal. We have to love our enemies and hold out hope for their redemption too. Thirdly, we need to identify our enemies which requires some self-examination. Who are you tempted to hate or look down on? Who do you avoid? Who makes you feel uncomfortable? Who in your life thinks that they're your enemy, even if they're not? Perception's reality. Who does the world assume is your enemy, even if they're wrong? Once you've identified them, fourth, we need to see the image of God in our enemies. Real and perceived. This is where prayer comes in. We say to God, God, I know that this person is beautifully and wonderfully made. I know that your glory and your fingerprints are all over them. Help me to see it. Help me to see my enemies through your eyes. Why do you think Jesus told us to pray for our enemies? And ask God to bless them because after a while, it's virtually impossible to hate someone that you've been praying for. You can't say, God, just enrich this person's life. Show your face to them. Bless them. Sweep them off their feet with your love. You can't pray that over and over again and not have it melt you. Change the way you approach that person. And then lastly, and this is the whole point. We need to turn our enemies into friends. Which means moving toward them. Which means we make the first move. We don't say, oh, I'll wait for them. No, you make the first move. You have the Holy Spirit. You've been transformed by the gospel. It's on you. It's not on them. Welcome them to your table. Have a meal with them. Say, I'd like to get to know you. I'd like to be your friend. Martin Luther King Jr. said, love is the only force that can transform an enemy into a friend. Love has creative and redemptive power. This isn't pie in the sky. This isn't unrealistic. We can actually do this. We can do this this week. We can move toward our enemies with grace and love and hope because that's exactly how Jesus moved toward us, even when we were God's enemies. See, this sermon isn't just about us, it's about Jesus. Jesus gave up his right to revenge. But he wasn't a doormat, he wasn't passive, he was totally in control when they came to arrest him. And Peter pulls out his sword and he lops the, the high priest's servant's ear off. 
Jesus rebukes Peter. And then he turns around and pronounces doom on those who came to arrest him, saying those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And then he stoops down and he picks up the severed ear and reattaches it and restores that man's body. Jesus isn't passive, he's active. He's creative. He's courageous. He's gracious. He shocks everyone in his path. When the Jewish police spat on him, blindfolded him, struck him in the face, and the Roman soldiers followed suit. When they whipped him, when they crowned him with thorns and mocked him, Jesus, with infinite dignity, self-control, and love, held his peace. Later, Peter would write, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus turned enemies into friends. One of the women who accompanied Jesus throughout his ministry was Joanna. Joanna was the wife of Chusa who managed Herod's household. You'd be hard-pressed to find a greater enemy in all of Israel than Joanna. And yet Jesus welcomed her as a partner in the gospel. He shared table fellowship with prostitutes and tax collectors, including Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector. He even lavished his grace on the occupying powers, healing a Roman centurion servant. On the cross, Jesus prayed for those who spit on him and mocked him, who struck him and drove nails through his ankles and wrists, saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Jesus is showing us a whole new way to be human. Because he trusts his father with ultimate justice, he is freed from the need to get revenge. He's free to respond creatively and graciously to those who seek to harm him. Because he shares God's desire to reconcile all things to himself, he holds out hope for peace and leaves the door open to reconciliation. Because he knows that he is God's beloved son and because he can see God's image in every person, he can hold his head high without looking down on others. He can move toward his enemies. He can forgive and bless his enemies. Because he trusts his father to vindicate him and to raise him from the dead, he can suffer innocently without lashing out. He can break the cycle of violence. Don't you want to love like that? Don't you want to be free like that?